We're talking about the Bible. It's a good place to be tonight, right? It's a good place to be when you're at church to talk about the Bible. And we spent last week, and we're going to spend this week and next week, talking about the why of Scripture. And I, I love 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 for that, and 17, where Paul tells Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. We talked about that last week. And we closed with asking ourselves the question, what's our relationship with the Bible? How do we view the Bible? What's our relationship with the Bible? And then, and then he goes on and says, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so tonight we're going to look at the two words, for reproof and correction. And that word reproof is almost better stated rebuke. Right? It's almost better stated rebuke. For rebuke, for reproof, and correction. See, and one thing I've noticed about us, we love, we love rebuking each other. Right? We love telling each other what's wrong with each other. Right? We, we don't mind that as much. Well, some of us, some of us, right? Some of us have that gift, um, gift, right? But then, but then giving the correction piece, right? Like, hey, you know, this is how you hurt me, but let's, let's try... Let's try this, right? And reproof and correction. And I know, I know, and one little, one little thing before we flip over to Hebrews chapter 4. I recognize, I recognize in our, hmm, well, it's Sunday night, right? So anything goes. I recognize in our everybody wins, nobody loses, Everybody gets a trophy, and see, I've already lost two people by talking about this. Everybody gets a trophy. Um, snowflake culture. I recognize that rebuke and correction are two things that are hard to talk about. And the Bible's full of it, but it's hard for us to wrap our, our minds around, right, the fact that we may need improvement. Right? It's hard to wrap our minds around the fact that there may be something in us that God may want to correct. There may be something in us, let's just go there, that God may want to change. Right? There may be some filth inside that we've lived with for so many years, but if God's going to take us to that next level of maturity, then we're going to have to learn that thing, and it's really hard, and it's going to be really painful, but we got to go there. And that's what I want us to talk about tonight, because it's really important. I was thinking this past week, as I was really med meditating over this message, I didn't finish it until about 9 o'clock last night, I finally sent it to Jeff, our, our video guy that puts the sermons together, about 9.21 last night, so he was sweating, and I was sweating, and but finally, finally wrapped it up. But I was thinking about this week, uh, the NFL. It may be the fact that the NFL draft happened. I'm sure many of you have followed it, all 87 rounds and however many, however many picks. The thing goes for a weekend, right? But I was thinking about an NFL. I was thinking about a football playbook. Anybody ever seen a football playbook? Any, any old football players in the room? Right? This thing's a three. All right. This thing's a three-ring binder, filled of pages. Right. And, and you've got to know, if you're going to be on this team, right, you've got to know what play is on page 37 on the right side of the page, the second play down, 
right? You got to know because if coach calls that play, you've got to know that play. Not only do you need to know what the outcome of the play is going to be, but you've got to know your role in the play, right? You've got to know your role in the play. And so Dylan and I are on the offensive line and I'm on the right side and he's on the left side. I've got to know how I'm going to block the quarterback. He's got to know how he's going to block the quarterback. And we both have different roles within that play. But if that play is going to be successful, then we have to rise to the occasion of both of our separate roles in order for that play to be successful. And what happens if that play is not successful? And it's your fault. You sit on the bench, right? My high school basketball coach, one practice, I got there early, and he said, Travis, come here for a minute. So I went, and uh, he took me up to the hoop, and he drew a line about eight feet around the basket, half circle, right? Eight feet, and he said, you get the ball in here. I want you to shoot it every time. Then he took me out to about 15 feet where the free throw line is, and he said, you get the ball out here, and there's nobody around you, you can, you can shoot this shot. But then he took me out behind the three-point line. And he said, if you ever take a shot out here, guess where you're sitting? And I was like, what are you talking about? He said, you will be sitting right next to me for the rest of the game. Right? There were consequences if I played outside of my role on the team. See, my role as the big guy was to be down low, catching the ball, turning the score, right? And the beauty of the body of Christ, Paul tells the church at Corinth, that we're one body, many members, and what God and, and, and is telling the church at Corinth through Paul is don't ask an ear to be a mouth, right? Don't ask an eye to be a nose. Don't ask a foot to be a hand. You guys get the picture or should we keep going? <laughs> right? We get the picture, Right? We each have a role within the body of Christ that, here comes the good part, God created you to be, right? God created you to fill. And we find that and we discover that through the Word of God. Through the Word of God. That's the importance of the Word of God. All right, so Hebrews chapter 4, look at verse 12 and 13. The writer of Hebrews says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, that sounds nice, to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let me read it one more time. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the intentions, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Four things I want to tell you about the Bible tonight. Number one, it's a living word. The Bible 
is a living word. We, we see it right here from the writer of Hebrews. It's living and active. It's living. It's a living word. The Bible, the Word of God, is unlike any other book you have in your home, in your library, in the trunk of your car, wherever you keep books. Right? The Library of Congress lays claim to being the largest library in the world with more than 130 million items on approximately 530 miles of bookshelves. That's a lot of books. That's a lot of reading. Pastor Ian would be in heaven. Okay, this is his heaven right here, right? 530 miles of bookshelves, 130 million items. The collections include more than 29 million books and other printed materials. 2.7 million recordings, 12 million photographs, 4.8 million maps, and 58 million manuscripts. Yet, among all of that, among all these volumes, among all these books, among all these photographs, transcripts, maps, recordings, the only ones that can lay claims to being alive and powerful are copies of the Bible. The only ones that can lay claim to being alive and powerful are copies of the Scriptures, the Holy Word, God's love letter to us. And this places the Bible in a unique category all into itself. We said it last week that the Bible is the only book that reads us. Right? The Bible is the only book that reads us. And as I approach the Bible, the question I have to ask myself, this living and active word, is I'm, am I approaching the Scriptures passively? Right? Am I approaching the Scriptures as a checklist? Am I approaching the Scriptures because I feel like I have to, out of legalism? Or am I going to the Scripture for life change? Am I going to the Scripture for, to be transformed by the renewing of my mind? Am I going to the Scripture to get, to get to know the God of the Bible? Am I going to Scripture to find the living hope that is in Christ Jesus that we just sang about? Why do I go to the Bible if it's just another book? We don't. We go to the Scriptures because it's alive. And because the God of the Bible has a plan for you to play, a role for you to play, and He wants you to discover that. He wants you to discover that. He wants you to discover that. It's a living word. Secondly, it's a powerful word. Does anybody remember Chuck Swindoll, Charles Swindoll? He said this, News articles may inform us, novels may inspire us, poetry may enrapture us, but only the living, active Word of God can transform us. The living, active Word of God can transform us. A lot of translations for the word active, um, uh, they, they put powerful there. And, and the real word, the Greek word, is, is, is energes, okay, or energies, energes, right? It's like energy, and in fact, it's the word from which we get energy or energetic, and the word literally means at work. And so, and so what, 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 what the writer of Hebrews is getting at is the Bible is living and at work among us. The Bible's living and at work among us, among us. Uh, Isaiah 55 describes 
the, the Bible as being a living agent or messenger that God sends to touch our lives. Listen to what God says in this passage. My word will not return to me empty or void, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. It will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You know what I love about the Bible? You know what I love about the Bible? It will accomplish what I desire, right? It will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. I love that the scriptures constantly teach me that I'm not God. I believe that's the number one reason for us, church, to be in the scriptures today. You want to talk about countercultural? Everything in culture, everything in culture teaches us to be your own God. Buy what you want. Be your own boss. Right? Uh, 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 run your marriage. Right? Run your relationships. Right? People don't like it, that's okay. Right? You do you. Right? All, all these things, all these things are, are, are messages to communicate to people that you are and can be and are capable of being your own God, not Scripture. In fact, we clearly see it in John chapter 15. I think I said John 14 this morning, Dylan, I correct myself. John chapter 15, for apart from me, you can do, you remember? Nothing. Nothing. The scriptures remind me that I am not the God of my universe. He is. The scriptures tell me who God is, and it's not me. Right? It's not me. And, and the scriptures are powerful in that. Therefore, therefore, because the scriptures are powerful in that way, be faithful to the scripture. Um, uh, in ten, over 10 years now, I can't tell you the number of people that have filled the pulpit for me. And, and I, I typically don't, don't give a lot of guidelines or rules around filling the pulpit. I'm I'm not that type of person, right? Mainly because there's no use, right? I could tell somebody, hey, preach for 35, 40 minutes. They're not going to do that because they know if they preach for 35 or 40 minutes, i.e. as long as I preach, right? You're not going to like them as much. If they preach for less, right, time than I preach, you love them, right? You love them. That's, a, that's, constant, that's like one of the biggest things I hear when, I, when I'm not preaching, when I'm out of town, back when I used to not be around, right? Um, I, I used to call and say, hey, how was church this morning? How'd so-and-so do? Oh, they did great. We beat so many people to lunch. Like, it was we were the first ones in the restaurant. We don't know what that feels like. And I'm like, yeah, thanks. He's never preaching again, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't do that, right? And I typically, I mean, sometimes we're in a series, and so I'll say, hey, we're doing this. If you, if you feel led this way, do that, right? When Ashley spoke back, hey, just anything on love, right? I think was like the, per, the parameter, right? Just do anything around love, right? And with, with Advent or whatever, joy, um, I think it was. And, uh, but, but I typically don't do that. The one thing I ask is this, be faithful to the Scripture, because the promise that we read here in Isaiah 55, 11, his word will not return void. In the pulpit, be faithful to the scripture. In your marriage, 
Be faithful to the scripture. Doing schoolwork, be faithful to the scripture. Everything you do in word or deed, do all to the name, all to the glory of God the Father, giving thanks to him, right? Uh, in, 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 in your parenting, be faithful to the scriptures. In other relationships and friendships, be faithful to the scriptures. In, in your job, be faithful to the scriptures. In your church, be faithful to the scriptures. The word of God is powerful. It will not return void. And yet we approach the scripture so passively and not actively. Right? It will not return void. It will not return void. Number three. It is a penetrating word. It's a penetrating word. This is where this gets fun. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, sharper than any two-edged sword. Like a sharp sword can lay open the human body with one slashing blow. So the sword of Scripture can open our inner life and expose it to ourselves and to others. So the scripture can open our inner life and expose it to ourselves and to others. See, in the Roman world, in the Roman world, there were two distinctly different swords. This is when I wish I was a sword guy, right? Because I could bring in some, some demonstrations, right? And scare some people, right? No, nothing, nothing unsafe about that, right? There, were, there was a large sword. It was long, heavy, pretty destructive. But then there was a short sword. A short sword. It was lightweight. Commentators say it's what Peter used to cut off the ear of the soldier in the garden. Lightweight, double-edged, and deadly because it cut both ways. But it could get, right? It could get in places that this big sword couldn't get, right? This big sword was sharp on one side and you could whack with it, right? And hope for the best. But this little one, if you were quick and, and feisty, right? Then you could, get, you could get to places and it cut both ways. And what the author is saying, I know that sounds dark, right? But this is how the writer of Hebrews is comparing the scriptures. What the author is saying is that God's word can reach into the innermost recesses of our being. The Bible can reach into the innermost recesses of our being, into the innermost places of our being. No heart is too tough and no soul is too dark for the Word of God. No heart is too tough, no soul is too dark for the Word of God. But, pa but pastor, you don't know. No heart, is too, no heart is too tough and no soul is too dark for the Word of God. But I've tried... No heart is too tough. No soul is too dark for the word of God. Keep staying faithful. Not only staying faithful to the scriptures, but staying faithful in your prayer life. That God would open their hearts and their minds to the scriptures. That God would use whatever, whatever means necessary. Use whatever means necessary. Because the word of God is penetrating. Right? It will not return void. Right? It's powerful. It's living. It's living. Piercing through the joints. 
the vision of joint and marrow. And then fourth, it's a discerning word. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God knows what we need before we even ask it. God knows what you need before you even ask it. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. See, some of us struggle to believe the promise that all things work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That's a promise in Scripture that we can claim. Ephesians 3.20, or is that immeasurably more? It's in there, okay? It's in there. He works together all Romans 8, same thing. Romans 8, <laughs> Ephesians 3.20, right? Two good promises, right? Works immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine, right? That's Ephesians 3.20, Romans 8, okay? He works together all things for the good of those who love and are called according to His purpose. You're right, Romans 8. The problem we have with that is we think that our, God, our good should be God's good. But they're different. When we look at that promise, right? God works everything together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes, right? What we've got to look at is how we define good. Because remember what we said earlier. We're not God. We're far from it. Right? He's God. Who gets to define good? He does. Right? He does. And so, you, you, you know, I've heard people say before, right? This isn't good, right? This isn't good. What well, is? but you just got to redefine your good, right? It's a discerning word. And God knows what we need, for we are naked and exposed before Him. We're naked and exposed before Him. We're going to talk more about that in a few minutes. Why all of this? Why is it important that it's living? Why is it important that it's powerful? Why is it important that it's penetrating? Why is it important that it's a discerning word? Well, look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. Flip back one verse. And you see there, the writer of Hebrews says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What the writer of Hebrews has been spending about through a good part of this, the beginning of this letter, the beginning of this writing, is rest. He's trying to get his readers to capture rest. He's trying to get his readers to enter that rest. I mean, after all, God modeled it, right? Seventh day, he rested. Jesus modeled it, right? Jesus modeled it throughout his teaching that he would rest. He would, he would, he would, he would remove himself from the crowds. He would go to a quiet place and pray. He would rest. Pop quiz for you. Pop quiz for you. 2021, Church of 2021. How many of you have mastered the art of rest. Anybody? And if you raise your hand, I want you to come up here and give us a crash course. All right? And here's the deal. Grabbing a bag of chips and a Diet Coke and sitting on the couch, right, is not rest. There's another word for that, but that's not this message, okay? 
That's not this message. It rhymes with craziness. Anyway, right? But not necessarily, right? Okay, relaxing. We can call it that, chillaxing, right? Right? But that's not rest, right? In Scripture, in Scripture, and and I'll be the first to admit it. I'll be the first to admit it, and some of you guys are, are like, how dare him even bring up rest in a message because I know this guy. I know his schedule. Okay, I'm not good at this, Right? But I'm learning, and one of the things I do know is that rest involves God. That if I'm truly going to rest, if I'm truly going to rest, it involves me pressing into God. It involves me pressing into Jesus. It involves me pressing into the Holy Spirit. It involves me leaving my phone someplace. Right? It involves me disconnecting. It involves me separating. Right? And what Paul, not, not Paul, not Paul. I think Paul wrote Hebrews. But what the writer of Hebrews, okay, that was a slip, okay? What the writer of Hebrews is getting at here is let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active. It's not going to return void. It's discerning the thoughts and intentions of your heart. You're naked and exposed before God in this, right? He knows you need this. Step away or the word of God is going to pierce you, right? I mean, a rebuke and correction means, right, that there's an action that needs to be rebuked and corrected. And the scriptures do that. The scriptures do that. You keep going with that to Hebrews chapter uh, 12, verses 6 through 11. Just flip over a few pages. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 11, the writer of Hebrews kind of comes back to this idea of discipline, comes back to this idea of rebuke, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves doesn't stop there, and chastises every son whom he receives. Chastises. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there from whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, get this, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we rejected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Redefine the good. For the moment of all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Amen. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, we learn, we talked about this last week, we learn to trust the God of the Bible, don't we? I mean, we, we, we learn that, right? right? I mean, that's, that's part of the maturity process as we're growing up into Him, as we're imitating Christ, as we're, as, as, as we're growing in our faith, we learn to trust Him. I was sitting yesterday with Herb Perry's family. You may remember Herb. Herb would be sitting right here tonight in his bright orange shirt that was Reese's shirt, but it'd say Jesus and be one of those 
cool shirts. He'd probably be sitting right here. He would have been at the 815 too and the 1015. If you didn't know Herb, Herb passed and went on to heaven um, a few months ago. And uh, Herb, when we first uh, became Summit, we did these small group signups. And I went out and looked at who was signing up for what small group. And I noticed that Herb had signed up for every single small group. And I think Ian came to me and was like, can he do that? Can he come to every small group? I said, let me, let me just talk to him and make sure he understands that this isn't, you know, that, that some of the groups are going to be talking about the same thing because I think we're doing the cure or something like that. I think we're doing a study as a church. And, and I said, let me, let me just call him and make sure that the conversations might be a little repetitive. And I, I called him up. I said, Herb, you know you signed up for every single small group, right? And he looked back at me and he said, how else am I going to meet people and get to know people? I said, well, Herb, you have a great day. <laughs> I hung up the phone and I went to Ian. I said, Herb's going to be at every small group. If the doors were open, Herb was there. Um, a year ago, I remember recording a church service one day for online, and Herb was just missing being in the church. So we told Herb, hey, we'll, you come, we'll stay as far away from you as we can, you sit on the back wall, and he just came, he sat there, it was kind of before masks were a thing, so I don't remember, but I just remember a smile across his face, he loved being here, but that was Herb, anyway, I was sitting in his house yesterday, meeting with his family, because his service is coming up in, in June, June 12th, and uh, we'll let you know all the details about that at some point, but I was sitting there yesterday, and we were swapping stories of Herb, you know, first time I met him, and kids were telling me all these things, and his daughter Anna sp spoke up and said, I learned to trust my daddy at a young age. I was like, huh, this, this is going to be good, and Anna said, daddy would come, and, and uh, he'd look at us kids and say, kids, get in the car, and when someone tells you to get in the car, what's the first thing you respond with? Where are we going? Right? I need to know where we're going. I need to know how long we're going to be there. I need to know how excited I'm going to, I need to get for this. Right? Are we going to Papa's? Are we going to Beals? Or are we going to load concrete at Lowe's? Because like, there's a big difference in what my anticipation level is going to be as I'm entering this car and how much I'm dragging my feet just kind of hoping that you're going to leave me behind. Right? So I need to know. Right? And, and, and she said, Daddy would never tell us where we were going. Daddy would never tell us where we were going if he said to get in the car. Kids, get in the car. Right? And she said, I learned, to, I learned to trust Daddy that if he just told me on a whim to get in the car, that it was good. That it meant fun. That it meant something that was about to be good for me that I wanted to get in that car. And she said, but I had to learn that trust. The same with us in Scripture. And it takes time. It takes time. But as she said that yesterday, I thought, you know what? Obviously, I was thinking about preaching to you today and the message and the, and the text that we we're going to be dealing with and the weight of the sermon of today. And I thought, we have to learn to trust the God of the Bible. That as we read it, it's not just another book, but it's for our transformation. It's for our growth. And that God may do some things through the scriptures. There's some words in Hebrews chapter 12 that are pretty hard. Chastises, discipline, 
um, you know, so on and so forth. Painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There's three takeaways that I want you to get from this. The first one is God sees everything. There's no escape. See, we want God to see us when we're hurting. We want God to see us when we're going through difficult times. We want God to see us and we want Him to come to our aid. But when it comes to our sin and our wrongdoing, we'd rather that God look the other way. We, we've even talked about it you know, from this pulpit that we're willing to give God 90%, 95%, maybe even 98%. But for each and every one of us, there's, there's that 2%, there's that 10%, right? That we'd like to keep just right here, right? But that's not the way it works. Verse 12 concludes by saying that the Word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word discerner in the Greek is the word from which we get critic. That's interesting, isn't it? As the Word of God penetrates into the innermost being of, 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 our, of ourselves, of our hearts, it does so as His critic or judge. Again, so that He can mold us and shape us into who He's created us to be. Not so that He can pick on us. Not because He's mad at us but because He knows the plans He has for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans for hope and a future. There's no escape. Second thing, God sees everything. There's no hiding. The Word of God is, ex is capable of exposing the thoughts and attitudes of a single human heart. There really is no use in hiding. There's no use in hiding. There's no use in hiding. And the reality is, the reality is that when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to the household of faith, when it comes to the way we feel about God and our relationship with Him, we don't have time to hide. There's too much goodness that's waiting for us to get out of our own way so that we can enjoy what He has for us. And yet so many of us are sitting off in a corner, we're scared to death, that if we actually said to God, God, here I am, send me. Speak, your servant is listening. That He might actually ask us to give up some things that we're holding near and dear to our heart that we know aren't pleasing to Him. That we know aren't pleasing to Him. There's no hiding. And then lastly, God sees everything. There's no excuse. The last part of 13 in Hebrews chapter 4. Naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. There's no excuse. Open, excuse me, to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. This verse plainly tells us that there is a coming day of reckoning which we will give an account for our lives. I'll give an account for my marriage. 
I'll give an account for how I shepherded my kids. I'll give an account for this message. I'll give an account for my conversation with Herb's family yesterday. I'll give an account for everything. I will give an account. There's coming in a day where I will give an account and, the, and, the, and, the, and there will be no excuses. There will be no good intentions. The day of excuses will be over. The book of Romans tells us there's a time coming, Romans 3.19, when every mouth will be stopped. There will be no more excuses. The Apostle Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There's coming a day where we will give an account for how we approach the Scriptures. Are you ready? And before I kind of do a case study of myself, my question for you is this. My question for you is this. How do you approach the Bible? Not what's your relationship with the Bible. But, but first of all, do you read it? Secondly, are you reading it passively? Are you reading it because you think you should? Are you reading it out of legalism? Or are you reading it because God just might change your life through it? I was a teenager, and uh, we were going on a weekend youth retreat with some other youth groups. And uh, we rented a 15-passenger van, which was a big deal, right? And when you rented a 15-passenger van, where was the best seat? It was just like in church. I'll give you a hint. Just like in church. The back row, right? It was a little bit wider, a little bit longer, right? And uh, so I took my, my portable CD player. Alex, you may not know what this is. Zach, you may. Hey, Catherine, you all may not. Right? But it was a portable CD player. Every time you tapped it or went over a speed bump, it would skip. Right? It would skip. And you had to have these, these headphones that had these wires, right, to plug in. Okay? To plug in. There was no world of Bluetooth. Okay? And so I got on the back seat of this van, got my music on, right? I'm listening to it. My, it's skipping every so-and-so because we're on I-40 in North Carolina, and it's bumping all over the place. And, uh, and all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I noticed a friend of mine that was part of our youth group. His name, this is the truth, is Jerry Lee Lewis. Okay? He had a twin brother has a twin brother named Terry Lee Lewis. So I was on the back row with Jerry and Terry, and Jerry was in between me and Terry. And Jerry had just been given a new Bible from his parents. He lost his other one or fell apart or something. And, uh, and I, I noticed out of the corner of my eye, again, I'm in my own little world. My feet are kind of stretched out. And um, I noticed that Jerry's taking his Bible and he's beating the seat in front of him with it. He's, he's taking the Bible and he's kind of trying to bend it and work the creases out, right? He's kind of taking the pages and crinkling some of them a little bit. And I finally take my headphones down and I look at Jerry and I'm like, dude, what are you doing? He said, listen, girls won't talk to you if your Bible doesn't look red. <laughs> I got to break this thing in before we get there. I got about 45 more minutes left in this van. And this thing's got to look like I read it every night if I have a chance. 
And I'm like, buddy. So I pull my Bible out, and I'm like, what do you, th-? no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Why do we read the scriptures? My prayer for us is that we read the scriptures for conviction. So I want to do something in closing tonight. I want to tell you some of my verses. I want to tell you some of my verses, and I want to tell you when God gave me some of them. I'll start with this. I think these are in order, but I can't promise that. Joshua chapter 1. God tells Joshua, after the death of Moses, right? Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you go and lead the Israelites to the promised land. And what's he tell them? Be strong, courageous, be bold and courageous. Three times he tells them that. You know what else he says in there? Be faithful to do everything that I've commanded, right? As I commanded Moses, right? As I promised Moses, I'm promising you Greater things are you going to do than Moses did, right? And God's just pouring his heart out to Joshua. Like, listen, Joshua, you got this. You can do this. And on the days where I feel like I'm not enough to do this, on the days where I feel like you could do so much better, on the days that I feel like I'm so incapable of, of, of being who I am and who God's called me to be, I think of Joshua. Because if God comes to me after the guy that that I've just followed with my life and given my life to, I think of Elisha and Elijah, right? Elisha dropped the plow, goes to follow Elijah, right? That God takes Moses home and God comes to me, Joshua, and he's like, hey, it's time. I'm like, can I just have a minute? Right? Like, let let me just have a minute, right? Everybody grieves differently, God. Like, I need some time, right? But God said, get up, be strong and courageous, be faithful to the scripture, to the word, everything I've commanded, and you'll walk into that promised land. I can't tell you how many mornings I wake up and I'm sitting, mostly Mondays, and I'm praying and I'm thinking, God, Tell me, I just preached for the last time, please. And I remember John, uh, Joshua 1. Get up. Be strong and courageous. Be faithful. It's not about you anyway. It's about the promised land. It's about the kingdom. And it's going to be too good for you to miss out on it. So buck up, pal, and let's go. That's the Travis translation. Let me give you another one. Jesus walking on water. Right? He comes to the comes out on the sea. Disciples are in the boat. They look out and they, they think it's a ghost. Jesus speaks to them, calls to them. Peter speaks up. There's two, there's two things in this one that God's spoken to me over the years. Peter speaks up and says, Jesus, if that's you, call me. I'll get out of the boat. I'll walk to you. And, 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 and there was one day I was reading that, and it was part of my call to Maine. 
was part of my call to Maine in, in, in May of, of 2010. And I was reading that, that this and, and, and the last one we're going to talk about. I was reading that, and I wanted to be Peter. I wanted to be Peter getting out of the boat. I didn't want to be like the cowards, the other disciples that were in the boat, right? Thomas, right? That he, he wasn't going to get out of that boat. I wanted to be Peter. Peter gets such a bad rap for this. But I want to be Peter. That God, if you call me, I'm going. God, if you're in it and you want me to be a part of it, I'm there. Temporarily, whatever. God, I'm your guy. And if that's you out there, call me and I'll walk out to you. He got out of the boat and started walking towards Jesus. Then what happened? He saw the waves. He saw the waves. I read this when I burned out for the second time. You'd think I'd learn after the first time. But I burned out for the second time and I was reading this passage. He saw the waves. He took his eyes off of Jesus. And when he took his eyes off of Jesus, he began to sink. Jesus picks him up and says, man, you have little faith. And if I'm Peter, I'm looking back at Jesus. Hey, I'm out here, aren't I? I mean, look at those dudes. They're back in the boat, right? At least I'm here, right? But Peter didn't say that. And the lesson was, don't ever take your eyes off of Jesus. Don't ever take your eyes off of Jesus. So when the enemy wants to come up and distract me, I think of Peter walking on that water. Hey, he called me out here. I got to keep my eyes on him. I got to keep my eyes on him. Two more. Jesus healing the paralytic in Capernaum. If you ever get the chance to go to Capernaum, it's fascinating. They have it set up today like it would have been in the time of Jesus when this story would have happened. All right? the, the walls aren't fully built but they're built about four feet high so that you can kind of stand on this platform and look out over the city of Capernaum and, vision, and envision what it would have looked like in the time of Jesus. We talked about in the Acts series about how they didn't have a place where 3,000 people could gather. And so when these guys wanted to bring their friend, the paralytic, on a mat to be before Jesus, and they go and the house was full, the room was full, there might have been 30, 40 people there, but it was full right? And my thinking, I'm thinking, all right, man, well, hey, we'll try to find out where Jesus is next time. We'll try to get this, the fast passes, the, the, you know, whatever, the gold tickets, right, backstage, right? We'll try, we'll try harder next time. No, these guys didn't quit, right? They climbed up on the roof with their friend on a mat, the paralytic. They dug a hole in the roof, and they lowered him right before Jesus. God, I want to be a friend. I want to be a shepherd that I dig a hole for Jamie to get to Jesus, that I dig a hole for Shannon and Lori to get to Jesus. That I dig a hole for my friend Dylan to be before Jesus. That if that's where he needs to be, right, I get him there. Whatever it takes, I want to be the type of friend that'll dig a hole. That'll climb on the roof. That'll do something hard. And I do it for all of you. I know I, know I said a few names, right? And you should never do that as a preacher because then people feel left out, okay? Just enter your name, okay? And I want to do that for you, each and every one of you. I want to be the type of friend for you, pastor for you, shepherd for you, that dig a hole. But he doesn't stop there. I was reading that passage another time, preparing to speak for a bunch of families affected by disability. And uh, 
you know, these guys lowered their friend before Jesus so that he'd walk again. That was the goal, right? Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. And then Jesus discerning what they were thinking, well, his sins are forgiven, but he still can't walk, right? He says, oh, get up, take your mat, walk. But he healed his heart first, which reminds me of the brokenness in my life and in your life that we are all sinners, that we are all imperfect, that we all have a disability, and it's called sin. And each and every one of us need Jesus more and more every day. Last one. May of 2010. Uh, just like Peter walking on water, getting out of the boat. God used this one for my call. Here. Paul to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 1 and 2. Yes, I know they say find a life verse. I'm so messed up, I needed two chapters. But I love them both, and they go together so beautifully. It's almost like God had a plan. Philippians chapter 1, Paul tells the church at Philippi, don't feel sorry for me because of my chains. He's imprisoned. He says, don't feel sorry for me because of my chains. God's using my chains for his glory to spread the gospel to the Praetorian Guard, whom you wouldn't have access to if you tried. And what he's saying is, I'm embracing my place. I'm embracing the place that God has me in. Is it comfortable? No. Do I wish I could be with you? More than anything. Do I wish the circumstances were different? Probably. But God's using me. So don't feel sorry for me. Celebrate the fact that God is using me. And I'm going to celebrate the fact that God's using me. And I'm going to be faithful in the place where he's called me to do what he's asked me to do. And I'm going to embrace it. And for a 26-year-old kid moving up from North Carolina to Maine to pastor a church at 26, right? I said to myself, I'm not going to feel sorry. I'm going to go. God's got this. God's got this. And I said that to a ton of people. I said that to my pastor who rebuked me for leaving. He said, you're just going up there for more money. I took a pay cut. He said, oh, you're just going up there to take Kristen home. She doesn't want to go. She wanted to be in North Carolina for the rest of her life when I met her at Liberty. And she said, I never want to move back to Maine. This is God. Don't feel sorry for me. And then he goes on in Philippians 2 and he says, Have this mind that is yours in Christ Jesus, who didn't think equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And as God spoke to me in my garage one night in May in 2010, he said, strive to have the mind of my son in everything you do. Lead with humility and be a servant. Lead with humility and be a servant. That's four or five of the places where when I'm doubting, 
when I'm scared, when I'm anxious, when I'm not enough, I remind myself of where I was and where God punched me across the face with these truths, with these promises that I claim, where I encountered God through His Word, and it changed my life. And I pray that you have some of the same. Obviously, you're not going to read some of those passages and come up with the same inspiration. But I have no doubt looking around this room that we could sit here all night and talk about different places of Scripture where God just floored you. Where God set you right. Where God healed your marriage. Where God brought your son and daughter to know Him. Where God did a miracle in your life. For the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The worship team is going to come. And as Dylan and I were talking about this service, this day, we talked about a song. It was really me that kind of brought it up to Dylan. It's called Overcome. I love the bridge of this song that says, we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And so, the challenge that I have for us tonight, don't overcome the things that are in front of you in your life with reason, with opinion, with good intentions. Overcome them with the word of God. The word of our testimony from Scripture that's sharper than any two-edged sword, that's living and active in our lives. Would you do that? Let me pray for us. God, I pray that as we approach Your Word, God, that we would do so not passively, but for transformation. God, that You would stir within us a passion for the things of your word. Speak to us on how you are calling us deeper in our relationship with you as the God of the Bible. And God, I pray, I pray that we would walk out of here with a different view of your word than we walked in with. In Jesus' name.